available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everybody, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the Scout.com network, 24-7 network. What are we calling it these days? Yeah, the Scout 247 CBS network. Uh, Whatever. Which, I, which I'm, also, I'm also part of. I'm Ryan Abraham. I publish USCFootball.com, and I'm part of that Scout CBS 247 network. And more importantly, we are the Podcast of Champions. Coming to you every six weeks or so, talking <laughs> Pac-12 football. Uh, <laughs> we make ourselves laugh. I don't that's... think that's going to be a successful motto for us. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to really uh, drive uh, a lot of lot of lot of earballs. No, not earballs. Definitely not earballs. <laughs> Listens. There's not a really good word for it. If you've got a good word for that, let us know. Yeah, um, but we're to, in our defense, we are ahead of schedule compared to last off season. We have. At least been doing them like every four or six weeks, which before we skipped like six months. Look, that's consistency. You know, all these football coaches, they're always asking for consistency, and that's what we're giving you. Now, it's not good consistency. It's not like it's (laughs) happening every day, but it's happening on a somewhat regular schedule, and that's all you can ask. Last time we actually did two episodes, like back to back. So that was kind of cool. So that should have tided you over for a while. Like, I don't know how long it takes. Maybe maybe it took you six weeks to listen to those last two episodes. (laughs) And here we are. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. You know, Dave and I are busy. We got everything's got a lot going on. We, but we do like doing this. Uh, we've toyed around with getting rid of the podcast of champions, getting substitute hosts. I don't, but the podcast of champions is pretty much us because we were, you know, at Redondo Beach High School chatting on the sideline, watching yeah. some high school kid catch a football. And we we're like, let's do this. So we're going to keep doing it and we're going to try to do it more, but we always say that. Yeah. And I, once the season starts, we'll be back to, uh, to regularity again because the season kind of motivated us last year too um so i feel like it'll it'll focus us we'll be we'll be raring to go come about a week before the season yeah so. i think so and, and to, to everyone's credit our listeners thank you for staying with us and you know tweeting at us you can twitter on twitter we're at pack 12 podcast uh last week i tweeted hey we're gonna do a show give us some ideas because we're you know weren't really sure what we wanted to talk about and we got some really good ones one of them like spawned on i had to send an email to like the entire scout west coast team and we got responses from everybody so we'll have uh some stuff on that so you can tweet us there our website is pack12podcast.com if you want to look at old episodes or listen to them you can look at them but it's better to listen to them uh voicemail yeah you can call us uh 641-715-3900 extension 73 four nine seven two leave a voicemail if you want to hear your voice you know in the next month or two uh, on the podcast you can do that um we're on itunes please subscribe please rate us give us a five-star rating not about the consistency of the shows but how the quality that dave and i bring you um but yeah that's that's we we, we like the tweets tweets are probably the easiest so tweet us at Pactful podcast and we'll definitely respond yep and uh We've gotten some uh, interesting questions over the last six weeks, as you might imagine. Um, two, uh, so I, I had one that I wanted to address up top okay. because um, 
I've gotten a couple of questions about it, and it's become a bit of a controversial topic on our message board. I'm not sure about yours. Is this travel ban? Um, so this is focused on the state of California. Um, California has banned uh, travel um, for, I guess, public and state employees to um, or state-sponsored and state-funded travel. So that generally covers public and state employees. Uh, to four more states. So originally, um, they had Kansas, Mississippi, North Carolina, and Tennessee, which were banned for, I think, AB 1887, which is a law um, having to do with discrimination against uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Um, and then they added four states uh, just recently, um, and I think they were Alabama, South Dakota, Kentucky, and most importantly for our listeners um, who are focused on the athletic side, Texas. Um, so this is really interesting. Um, I don't know how much it would affect like a USC because they're a private school, but yeah. for UCLA, Cal, San Diego state, um, those sorts of schools, this would, um, in theory affect them, uh, from everything I've read, um, any contract that was signed prior to, um, this, this, uh, this ban being enacted, um, would be fulfilled. They're not going to, it's not retroactive. It's not going to retroactively affect any contracts that, you know, UCLA or any of these schools might've signed. Um, but the question is going forward, like bowl games, you know, if the Alamo bowl wants to select Cal or UCLA or if, uh, or if the NCAA tournament, if there's a regional in Texas, will that affect it? And that's where it's probably going to be a little bit murky, um, whether or not, you know, one of these schools can say, well, you know, the bowl contracts are signed with the league and, you know, years upon years in advance or the NCAA tournament contract is signed, you know, decades in advance or whatever it is. But that's where I could see this sticking. I mean, I I think a lot's going to change in the next however many years to, you know, so if if schools are scheduling things for 2026, a lot's probably going to change in the meantime. But um, this is, uh, I, I think there could be some effects. I don't know. What's your take on all this? Yeah, um, like Fresno State's a team I used to cover. They're playing um, Alabama. Uh, so that comes up a lot. Whenever you're talking about a national power being in, like, hey, Alabama fans, like, what? Something's going to happen to stop a football game? What's going on here? Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Memphis is involved in Tennessee. There's a lot of different aspects there. To, I mean, to me, it's just, it seems kind of silly. Um, actually, funny, I just read a book on the, plane when i was traveling and i got i'll get to the name of it It, but it was a it was a lot about the second american revolution so you you talk about the you know the war for independence and all that stuff but if you you know if you go back and recall history there wasn't the united states of america they called us that but we were basically 13 states that just wanted to operate independently and there was really like a second revolution to try to get that together to have a national government a federal government as opposed to being like a confederation of states so that's the way our nation was formed every state basically has their own laws. They wanted to be more autonomous than they were. Now there's the federal government overseeing everything. So when it comes to like state law kind of stuff, I always kind of, you know, revert to like, there's still the way we were founded states, you know, California can do different things in Ohio and Florida and all that kind of stuff. So when it seems like California trying to dictate what other states should be doing, no matter what it is, it just seems kind of silly to me, but I don't, I don't know what you think. Well, you're, you're running up against the 14th amendment here, which is uh, equal protection under the law. So, yeah, states can, you know, the, 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 this, I mean, it's a, it's a whole, you know, uh, argument about it and there's right, right. points on both sides. I mean, I think if you, if you go back to the whole, th- I mean, we're getting into history now, but <laughs> they tried the Articles of Confederation, which was the system of government that would involve, 
you know, much more autonomy for the states, and it didn't work. Yeah. They tried it, and it just didn't work. They needed a stronger federal government, and that's why we have the Constitution. Um, and the Equal Protection Clause is basically if you've got rights in one state, those rights should carry over to another state. And, you know, how that exactly works, how you do it, you know, without infringing on somebody else's other right, and, you know, a whole bunch of religious rights stuff comes into it as well. And it just ends up this whole amalgam of, you know, controversy and all of this, you know, California's within its rights to, you know, institute its own ban. Apparently, I don't think it's been challenged in the Supreme Court, but we'll see if it is. And, you know, at least as of now, um, these states are within their rights to, you know, deny, you know, certain protections to, uh, I guess, their citizens. But yeah, I mean, whichever the case, uh, we're more focused on how it affects athletics. Yes. Here on the podcast. Sorry, I didn't mean to like jump into the whole. No, no. Um, but, but I think when yeah, it comes yeah. down to it, it's going to be, this is a powerful, like, you know, we, we were talking about before the show, um, you know, will cable companies, whether it be a demise and all that kind of stuff. What's keeping everything alive is live sporting events. If you're going to hurt live sporting events, it's going to get and a lot of attention. you are affecting us. Yeah. All right. Damn it. <laughs> so yeah. figure this out, people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that it, it has an immediate effect on pretty much anybody in athletics aside from like the bowl game situation. And again, I think they would figure that out based off the bowl contracts being signed long in advance. Yes. Um, but you know, if these, if these laws remain in place and if this travel ban remains in place for say five, six years, it's going to affect future scheduling. I mean, it might start affecting future scheduling this year because, you know, you're probably starting to look at. You know, I don't know about USC or other schools, but UCLA has contracts signed with a lot of different schools up to, I think, 2026, 2027 already. Um, so if, if, you know, if UCLA is looking for a rematch with Texas after they had their series a few years back, suddenly they have to rethink that idea and it becomes a little bit of a guessing game. Can we sign a contract with Texas on the assumption that, you know, in 10 years something's going to change? Either this travel ban will be lifted or Texas will change its law or it will all be struck down. And so it uh, it adds an interesting wrinkle to everything. Well, I would get your thoughts on this, Dave. We definitely have different political views and stuff. but the when, like, <laughs> You when only have see... to follow us on Twitter to find that out. Yeah, yeah. But if you've seen um, the – like for the NCAA when there were bans put in place for like postseason, like, hey, we're not going to go to North Carolina for po- – in. I think as a national organization, if you want to try to put pressure on a state to uh, make a change, and it, I, you know, we've seen that work and that you know, it can be effective. For me, it's just weird to have like a, one state try to tell another state, well, we're not going to, I don't know if you're going to have the same effect. If it was like the NCAA doing it, more of a national thing, I could see that working. But for one state to do it, I don't, it just seems a little weird to me. I don't know if you agree. With I think it's, uh, it, it is a little bit weird. I think it's, um, I think it's like a PR thing. I think it's they're trying to they're trying to bring the issue more to light. Um, I think that what's the effect of not doing state funded travel to a huge state like Texas? I mean, it might have an effect on, you know, what was another one included in that group? Like Alaska. Was that in there? Let me see. No, it's South Dakota, like Californian travel to South Dakota. Maybe that'll have an effect. I don't know how much, <laughs> you know, California tourism is part of the South Dakota um you know, annual budget. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the effect is more kind of uh, philosophical and, um, and spirit, uh, like, you know, just kind of the spirit of it than uh, necessarily a, a big dollars and cents thing. Um, 
and it'll be interesting if it leads to some sort of you know because a lot of these western states are uh leaning pretty hard left it'll be interesting to see if it lean leads to you know oregon and washington doing similar things and if you have a quorum of states doing stuff like this then it becomes i think something that's actually significant like if if they ban public travel from oregon washington california you know add in a few more like new york and uh you know illinois or whatever um if you ban travel to in all those states to texas that will have an effect um whether it's substantial enough to you know make a change but um it's interesting I, i'm i'm kind of interested to see the the constitutional uh see what um you know just from a interest standpoint kind of a history standpoint because we're living in very interesting times right now i'm kind of interested to see what the supreme court um because i'm sure there's going to be challenges to both ends of this uh what they have to say about it because you know a big part of a free democracy and a free society is you know and a big part of our government is you know free travel and not having to you know being able to travel from state to state so that's a piece of this too is california within its rights to you know ban public um you know, public employees from going to another state and is Texas within its right to, you know, enact legislation against the LGBTQ community. It's, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see which way, um, cause I'm sure this will become a Supreme court issue in the not too distant future, which way the court goes on it. Yeah. You know, overall though, if you, do I think any football game will be impacted by this? No, I think something will be resolved. Yeah, something's going to change. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I think in the in the short term, it might affect scheduling. Like, I don't think you'll see any new games scheduled with from like a Cal or a UCLA or a San Diego State or a Fresno State. I don't think you'll see any new games scheduled with Texas or a Texas school or Alabama or an Alabama school in the next year or two. But I think it'll probably something will change. But in but, that time, well, like say like UCLA like makes a run this year and like goes to the playoff or win the Pac-12, something like, you know, really significant. And they have a chance to play like Alabama at Texas Stadium to open the season like USC played them last year or something like that. And if something like a huge game like that was impacted, I think it would get a lot more, uh, there, it'd be, you know, bubbled up to the surface and it would, people would care more. And I think there'd be some kind of resolution. But since none of the like current games, I don't think sports are going to play too big of a factor unless like something big like that kind of happens. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I just don't think it's going to have too much of an effect and UCLA is not going to any sort of playoff this year. So I trying, wouldn't really stress about it too much. Guys. Trying to throw you a bone there, Dave. I don't know. What <laughs> you, you're throwing my constituents a bone. Okay. I, uh, I ceased to care long ago, long <laughs> ago. <laughs> um, well, okay. So I tweeted last week, maybe I'll go, I'll go up through some of the tweets. We have some emails and stuff too. Um, Jeff, uh, this is from W.S. Trojan. He wanted to know thoughts on the TV deal for sure. So he wants to know, there's been a lot of stories in the, um, you know, in the media about the Pac-12 and how they're falling further and further behind the other conferences as far as revenue, not just from the television deals, the main deals, the secondary deals, the, the network, Pac-12 network deals. I mean, there's just a lot of, deficiencies it seems like as far as the Pac-12 schools versus the other schools aren't the beat writer on my site Dan Weber's just been you know pounding Larry Scott um you know we get a lot of I think John Wilner published something this morning um for you know he he does a great job covering the Pac-12 a lot of stories about this I know USA Today did a story about Larry Scott being the highest paid uh executive in college football uh, the conference commissioner um, so there, there's a lot of stuff out there. 
Uh, Dave, I don't know if you have any thoughts on uh, what's going on here with the Pac-12 TV stuff. I mean, I just think it's, I mean, it's clearly, clearly it's not, is not as well managed as um, I think other networks, and clearly they're overspending for talent in terms of, not even talent, clearly they're overspending on executives, um, especially compared to, uh, I mean, if you, if you take it as a function of revenue, they're not generating enough money to spend as much money as they are on guys like Larry Scott or even any of the other executives up there. I mean, their office space is out of this world and, you know, all the reports of the private, private air travel and all this stuff that just doesn't need to be part of uh, what they're doing. And I mean, so much focus on like, I don't know. I, I think they've had nice aspirations, um, but it, it seems like they're doing a lot of running before they have even start walking, like trying to set up a regional partnership with like China and overseas stuff instead of, you know, just doing something to get this on more TVs in the United States would seem like a, a good solution. Um, from a programming perspective, I think the Pac-12 network is, you know, it, I, I thought they had some nice ideas their first year, and then I think it's kind of stagnated. Um, I would love to see a lot more off-season football coverage that's not just replays of games. Um, I think there's a lot more to be done. I mean, we each run a, I mean, we each are, you know, part, you run, and I'm part of a website that generates a bunch of stories every day in the off season. Um, and there's, there's, you know, 12 such sites that cover the Pac-12. If we're doing it, they should be able to generate, you know, really original, interesting football content in the off season. Maybe it's covering recruiting more or whatever. But if you get into like the revenues and stuff, you know, I, I, I read an argument that the Pac-12 network, by being wholly owned by its schools, is going to survive the coming cable crash or whatever probably a little bit better than other networks but i don't know how much i buy that first of all and second of all i don't know how much it's going to matter you know i'm sure other networks are going to be able to pivot and in the meantime the pac-12 was so far down in revenue that it's just i mean it's just out of control that's that's my long-winded take on it no i agree and i think that's what the argument is they're like well we own all of our our network and that's true uh, the business model for the Pac-12 is different than all the rest of them. The rest of them that work really well, the Pac-12 doesn't work very well. And it's been five years, so you wonder, like, I mean, is there going to be some enormous benefit in year 10? Like, then you could argue something like it's a, uh, you bought, you know, it's like you bought the stock at, you know, penny stock and it's going to go through the roof. You just got to wait 10 years. I just don't see that happening. There's no indication that that's going to be there. And as far as exposure goes, you could argue that it cost Christian McCaffrey his Heisman Trophy, you know, not being able to be on TV as much um, as, as the other schools. And and the discrepancy to me, it's like the decisions that were made early, having seven networks, and then you have people arguing, well, you can get this one, but I can't get this one. And they're showing important things on a regional network versus a national one. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating for people, you know, here in Los Angeles that I can watch the SEC network all day, and I but I can't watch – uh, the Pac-12, which doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. And like you said, that it's, everything's expensive. Like they pay, you know, their executives at the Pac-12 network are paid more than executives at the SEC network for whatever reason. Yep. And, and they said, look, well, we have the entertainment capital of the world in our footprint in Los Angeles. Let's build all our studios brand new up in the most expensive real estate in the world in San Francisco. Um, you know, the Embarcadero, like that makes a whole lot of sense, even though most of the talent you would want is down in Southern California. Um, I, I like what the SEC network did. 
Um, they, you know, a guy like Paul Feinbaum is a superstar, right? I mean, he's like the SEC mouthpiece. He was in Birmingham, Alabama. They already, ESPN already had studios in Charlotte. And they said, even though Charlotte's not an SEC town or an SEC state, we're moving you there. We're going to have all our, our networks there. So the SEC network is in a state that's not even in the SEC footprint because it was for cost. You know, they, they already had a studio that was working there. So they seem to do that. That's their core competency. And you can argue how well or not that ESPN and Fox and all those companies do it, but they seem to do a really good job with these networks and they do it in an efficient way where they're bringing money back to the schools. The Pac-12 just tried to do everything on their own. And then you're looking back at the product after five years, like, I just don't think this is where you wanted to be five years later. Yeah. And I think that's a good point where that's what the SEC network is doing. And you would think essentially, uh, you know, going back to 2011 or whenever this thing started, I think it was 2011. Um, you're, you're basically in kind of a startup mode. So why are you raising your overhead so significantly early on when you don't really have the revenue yet? It just, I don't know. It all seems kind of back ass words. I, I think they were trying to do a lot of, you know, uh, they were trying to do a lot of different things. I think they still are trying to do a lot of different things, trying to expand into Asia and all these different things. And um, I just don't think that they have nailed the the core of the business, which is, actually getting viewers in the united states um you know they've, they've made some like small steps i think getting on the sling tv package was big um especially as more and more people cut the cord um doing that probably is going to help them a little bit but you know i mean nothing's going to beat direct tv and at least not for a little while um so they're going to be behind until they can get that deal done and even if they can i think they're still going to be significantly behind and then you have like you know, but there's new, like, that's nice on Sling, but Sling only has the regional. I don't think it has the, cause I have Sling TV. I'm, I have it right now in my little studio. Uh, but like YouTube announces a thing and they have all the other sports networks except the Pac 12. Yep. Anything new, you should be on it, you know? Um, the, the dumb thing that I mean, I, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I would have to figure that Netflix and Amazon, they're clearly going to be our media providers of the future, right? Like, once cable's dead, it's going to be like all of these companies, and I'm sure they're starting to look at the idea of doing live sports because everyone else is. Twitter's doing it. YouTube's doing it. Um, so I would have to figure that's going to be part of that. Be proactive. Reach out to one of those. See if you can get your Pac-12 stuff on there because they're looking for content at all times. Um, and I don't know. I just think that there's some some opportunities, and maybe they are doing all that stuff, but... Um, you know, if they're not going to get the DirecTV deal done, they really need to uh, expand and just try to be at the the forefront of everything else that's coming. Um, and just so, I mean, we're not trying to, like, just bag on the Pac-12 here. It's a significant problem, and I think it's only getting worse. If you look at the last six years, um, you know, schools like Ohio State and Michigan and the Big, and the Big Ten uh, made about $300 million in distributions. And Pac-12 school is about 193. So that's over a hundred million dollar difference. Uh, even a school like Rutgers, who joined the Big Ten and was getting only partial shares for the first six years. Interesting enough, like Utah and Colorado it took them three years to get a full share. Rutgers, they, they waited for six years. They still, even though Rutgers was only getting a partial share, they made almost 200 million, 199 million, still more than what the Pac-12 schools would make over that time. And then going forward, Rutgers is going to blow them away because they're going to be a full share partner so this is significant money and schools like you know washington state when they redo their stadium expected more money coming in or 
or a cow who's having a lot of financial problems. Um, I mean, that's money that could really help these athletic departments. You're talking about potentially losing sports and all kinds, you know, just there's the gap will be widening. And I don't think the Pac-12 is doing things to try to at least slow down the tide. Cause it's not like you can fix it. You just have to at least stop the, the bleeding. And I don't, it just seems like it's bleeding out right now. Yeah. Completely agree. All right. Um, well, you know, we did get a, I tweeted, uh, one of the, we did have a question. Let me pull it up from uh, someone on the Cal's uh, financial situation. Do you see that tweet? Let me look at it real quick. Let me um, log in to our Twitter. Our Twitter. Yeah, let's see. We had, okay. We had one tweet. Larry Scott says conference is killing it. Revenues compared to other conferences otherwise. Um, is it all about TV or what? Yeah, I mean, we just kind of talked about that. Uh, let's see. I know we had something about Cal because I, I, te- I tweeted, um, okay, Frank, uh, tweeted us. He said, Cal's finance effect on athletic programs. Will the UC, the whole UC system be affected? Cal scrapping athletics ever? Will UCLA ever go private? So that was the question we had. Um, and I tweeted, uh, Ryan Gorsey, our buddy Ryan Gorsey, and he kind of has a long response here, but, um, I'll read it for you if you'd like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so this is about Cal. Ryan Corsi said, My sense is that Cal will have to cut programs at some point in the near future, especially with the new chancellor, uh, Carol Christ, or Christ, is it Christ? I don't know, at the helm. Uh, multiple sources have said that she's going to take uh, a cut to Cal's athletic programs, even though the task force on intercollegiate athletics came back with a verdict uh, that doing so would harm the university as a whole. Should Cal cut sports? The school would save five to seven million optimistically per year on a hundred and forty four million dollar campus budget shortfall. Cutting sports would tick off donors to the degree of possibly a twenty five million dollar a year reduction in giving to the campus itself. Beyond that, Cal should cut uh any beyond that, Cal should Cal cut any women's sports, by far the biggest money losers on campus, they'd have to shift to a different prong of Title IX and consequently cut hundred and eighty or more men's sports. Uh, it must be scholarships. He must be talking about. They don't have 180 sports. Uh, the issue is endowment. UCLA, which will never go private, don't know where he's getting that idea, has many of its scholarships and sports endowed and also much less ambitious athletic program in terms of teams. Cal has 30 more than any Pac-12 or, uh, school other than Stanford. They said, uh, Cal won't scrap athletics. Um, but the sports that would, be right for cutting to get down the title nine numbers would be baseball, rugby crew, women's field hockey, and all six track and field teams. The biggest uh, albatross across the athletic directors next is the fact that the university is putting the payment on the stadium debt into the athletic department operating budget. No major D1 program worth its salt has done that. That means for the next several years, Cal Athletics is operating at an $18 million hole from the get-go every year. That's going to balloon up to over 30 million a year as they start to pay down the principal. Cause right now they're only doing the interest. Uh, the campus complicated matters by agreeing to a boneheaded deal with a panoramic, uh, hill association with limits to the number of events that the new stadium can host, choking off streams of revenue that other new venues like the one used like that used to break even, like the 49ers use Levi Stadium to host Taylor Swift. Phew. Okay. That's what course we are more likely. Ryan, we are more likely 
to be living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland in a hundred years than for Cal to have actually paid off this debt. <laughs> like much more likely, like significantly more likely. Um, yeah, they're gonna have to cut some stuff. I mean, just my 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 strong take on this is uh, Cal Athletics is going to look a whole lot different in five to ten years than it does right now. Like it's gonna be streamlined, if not just gone. It's uh, you can't. I mean, you cannot take on that sort of debt. Like that's insane for a for a school's athletic program to take on that insane amount of debt. That's just such horrible mismanagement. So bad. And Cal was already in bad shape. Didn't they cut their baseball team for a few years just like seven or eight years ago? I thought so, yeah. I mean, their finances were not good to start out with. And then to take on that amount of debt for a stadium, for a sport that I know we're all football you know, fans here, but a sport that might not exist in 15 or 20 years. Like, it's just insane. Anyway. And the fact that you can't host other events there, you at least try to, you know, make more money. Yeah. uh, By doing that. I mean, that's, that's kind of baffling. But there was a, there was a couple articles about that Cal's situation wasn't as dire as you thought, like the chancellor or someone, they were like hiding money in other places and stuff. Did you see that? I can't remember what exactly what the story was. I don't, I I don't remember that, but uh, I mean, even if it isn't as dire, I mean, it's dire. If those numbers are even close, like if they're even close to owing, $18 $18 million, $18 million a year just to pay off the interest until the principal payments start when it bumps up into the 20s. I mean, there's just no way. There's just no way unless, I mean, unless Larry Scott pulls a rabbit out of his hat with uh, the Pac-12 networks and suddenly revenues go up by like an order of magnitude, but I just, I'm not seeing it. No. Not seeing it. Sorry, Cal. Yeah, it's, uh, and but I, I agree with his point that if you do have you know, if, if you want to cut sports, people are like, Hey, we're going to cut football. Um, how much that impacts? I mean, what, what better way? You know, we cover football. Like you said, we, we love, you know, we all are college football fans here. Um, that's a, that's a direct link from you to the school. And I ran into a buddy I haven't seen in years. We used to hang out at the beach a lot. He did his masters at UCLA. We used to talk football all the time. We ran into each other like Manhattan beach and, Boom, we start talking about football. Like, oh, what do you think is going to happen here? What do you think about Josh Rosen? Like, that's like this connection. And like, if USC and UCLA, like, they don't have football anymore, we would never be talking about the schools we went to. You know, like, oh, yeah. there's this direct link there. And if you want to be given money and all that kind of stuff, that, you know, that brings people back. There's not going to be a reason to really go to Cal if you're not going back to go to a football game on Saturday. And are you going to be given money and stuff? I, it just seems like a bad business decision. Maybe it's yeah. costing you this much money, but you need that to run and you need football to run and you need these other sports to, to, to go or you can't do football. So you kind of have to keep them. And as for Frank's, I mean, he asked an interesting question, which is, is the whole UC system affected? And I think it will be. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's such an independent entity that you can take on that amount of debt at a public school and then not expect that the rest of the UC system would be affected. Um, UCLA for every complaint I've ever had about it from a, quality of play standpoint from just so many different things it's very well run budget wise and i i can't imagine that you know the university of california regents are going to look at that and say hey ucla you might want to you know kick a little bit of that over help your sister school um but i i I don't know it's very interesting and then he asked will ucla ever go private 
UCLA is increasingly um, de facto in a lot of ways a private school. Um, athletics is run much more like a private school athletics than it was in the past. Um, there's still some wrinkles that get thrown in that you know UCLA has to get approval from the UC regents to pay their coaches certain amounts, even though like the vast, vast majority of coaching salaries might even be entirely come from private funds or from fundraising. Um, and uh, I know the, the Anderson school is basically just a private school in the middle of UCLA. Um, so there's, there's some major aspects of it that it's, you know, becoming more like a private school. The cost is still below private schools, but it's climbing every single year. Um, when my brother went to UCLA, it cost, and this is in like the nineties, it was like, I don't know, something like 3000 a year or something crazy. And when I finished up, it was, I mean, it was well over 10,000 and that was living off campus. Um, so anyway, out of state, uh, out of state tuitions, almost like private (laughs) tuition, right? Yeah. Yeah. Out of state tuition is nuts. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's not, I don't know what USC is these days, but it's probably what 50 grand a year something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Something crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's not yet there even out of state, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's getting more like that. I think, um, you know, a, a lot of the changes in just how those things get run, I think, has made uh, UCLA go a little bit more private. And I think something like this, if, if you know, if Cal, if Cal's issues do start to affect UCLA in a major way, I think that would be even more incentive for UCLA to start leaning more into being a private school. But um, I don't think it's ever going to happen officially. We had a question, a tweet from Michael G. Dave. He says, thoughts on how the Ducks coaching staff have shown the ability to recruit at the highest level in school history. Where's this question? This was a, a tweet uh, was like six days ago um, from Michael G. About the Michael Ducks. G. Thoughts on how the Ducks coaching staff has shown the ability to recruit at the highest level in school history. Is that right? Well, I did see a tweet this morning. So um, I can't remember who did it. Um, a lot of uh, top scout 300 commits already uh for Oregon. oh wow yeah. yeah they've been recruiting really well I, I i wish i had the numbers in front of me or how well, many I didn't like realize got... this was the I, I guess it might be or at least that because uh, uh, the the interesting thing about the chip kelly and mark helfrick era and even the late bilotti era is that even though they were generating a lot of you know wins and everything the recruiting was good it wasn't like you know, USC level or even UCLA level on a consistent basis. It was like top 20, top 25 ish. Um, but this class, it's already got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven top 300 guys out of 16 commitments. That, that projects is probably a top 10 ish class. So yeah. wow. That's, I mean, that's pretty awesome. You, you see this often, I think with, uh, new staffs. Um, and I think they did hire a pretty, dynamic recruiting staff and i willie taggart is no slouch whatsoever um and i think uh you know when you're when you're new staff and you haven't yet even you know played i think you've got a lot to sell um i, I know you know firsthand this happened a lot with uh, ucla and their 2013 class most of that recruiting was done you know in the summer before this the year started and they got a lot done just pitching the you know pitching the future and then they had a good season, and then that turned into a top five class. Um, I think if Oregon goes out there and you know 
bounces back in a big way and finishes, you know, nine and three or so. Um, yeah, this could end up being a, a truly incredible class. Yeah, they're definitely getting a lot of buzz. Maybe we can have uh, Brandon or uh, Greg Biggins or Blair or someone to come on and, and kind of talk about it. But I, yeah, I wish I had the numbers in front of me. But it was like, yeah, seven or eight of the Scout 300 in June. And that seemed like it was more than any year of the past, like eight years or something. Um, I forget who tweeted that out. But it was it was a certainly looks like a significant jump. And Willie Tiger's come in there and uh, you know whipped things into a frenzy. So, I mean, it's June. So... It's, you know, June recruiting. You can talk a lot about that, but, uh, it matters in February, but it seems like every, the, the signs are pointing towards, yeah, this could be like a really, really highly ranked, uh, Oregon class. Well, very cool, Oregon. Yeah. That's, uh, that's always interesting. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get back, um, to competing with, uh, with, uh, the dreaded Huskies up north. Um, okay. So I'm kind of regretting reading this because I have all of the words on my screen and Dave has none of them. So that means uh, I get to read everything. But, uh, Mr. at Mr. Warhop, C. Warhop, he's got a little fight on. So I assume he's a USC guy. Uh, mm-hmm. emoji. I, I don't know how to do emoji. So I'm not, I couldn't put one of those in there if I tried, but I see people have them all the time. He wanted to know, Dave, each of the teams quote big three on offense and defense after spring ball. And you want to know about any grad transfer updates. I don't have any of those. I didn't do that, but I did email everybody on our, on our team. I've got it pulled up too. I can, uh, I can give off a few of these. Oh, you got some of them? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Cause the emails came in. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, I, I copied them all down. Should we do, you want to do north first? You want to do south first? Let's, uh, let's start. Um, I think we did north to south last time. So let's start south to, uh, south to north this time. Okay. So I think that leaves us with Tucson first. So Arizona. Do okay. we have do we I, have something from Jason Shearer? I, I do. Have I have it pulled up. Um, so for running back, uh, for the offensive side, for he has JJ Taylor, the running back. If Taylor doesn't get injured last season, he might have led the conference in rushing. As he goes, Arizona's offense goes, and expectations are high. Uh, his offensive lineman Jacob Alsadek. Alsadek, he's a big dude. Yeah. Big, big dude. One of the few players on Arizona's team that could get NFL consideration. Alsadek is the author of the offense, is the author. He's the anchor of the offensive line and one of the more underrated players in the conference. Um, he was interesting, actually. I saw him, um, at the UCLA camp, I want to say in the spring, summer of 2013. And he's a really, really big guy, really strong. Um, we thought he was kind of stiff then, but seeing him play in college, he's definitely become a little bit more flexible, which is a rare thing to see from an offensive lineman that they become more flexible over time. He was, uh, did he go to school in Southern California? Yeah, he was like a San Diego kid. I yeah, think. I think it was like for, okay, yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen him in person, but I've heard the name before. I just wasn't sure. All right. And then, uh, wide receiver, Sean Brown, S-H-U-N. I assume that's how I say it. Arizona's leading receiver last season. I should know that. Brown isn't as expl- an explosive athlete or bigger than everyone else. He's simply a strong route runner with the best hands on the team, and he gets the job done. You remember Brown much? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I think Jason's evaluation is dead on. Uh, yeah, it's it definitely some unheralded players there. So you could see. Uh, kind Arizona of was not good last year. Um, just a just a reminder for everyone out there. They were they were not a good football team. Um, they were not. Uh, they, they were bad. They were, they were 
they were very bad. They were uh, they were the worst team in the Pac-12 and one of the worst teams in the country. We don't, but we're we're trying to be positive, Dave. We want to look forward. Hey, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just laying out the facts here. <laughs> just laying out the facts for everyone. On the, de- on the defensive side, uh, cornerback Dane Cruikshank. Is that how you say it? C R U I K Shank. Um, Cruikshank. Okay. He was a bit inconsistent last season, but the talent is there. He has good size and could have a breakout season. Don't remember okay. him either. I feel bad, but I do not. No, no. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I watched, I want to say three complete Arizona games last year, if that. Yeah. Just not um, enough time in the day. So he's got all secondary guys here. Uh, free safety, Demetrius Flanagan Foles, clearly one of the better players on the team. He's a balanced safety and the type of consistent player the defense needs more of. Okay. And then another safety, Tristan Cooper. He played uh, consistently as a freshman and has a bright future. He might be the hardest hitter on defense. It was a bit of a surprise how successful he was right away. So uh, looking like Jason thinks a pretty strong secondary for the Wildcats. Yeah, I think the issue is more up front for them and how they're going to defend against the run um, in the Continuing post Scooby Wright era. Yeah. ASU. ASU. Let me see. We got. I've got ASU. I've okay. Got ASU. You want to do um, it? Yeah. Uh, our man Chris Cartman. Um, he was. Uh, he was a little bit off in his uh, offensive listings because he lists Kalen Balaj twice. Oh. Um, once as a wide receiver, once as a running back, and once as a sophomore, once as a senior. I did a little bit of sleuthing um, because we didn't uh, figure this out until press time, so to speak. Uh, he probably means Nikhil Harry as the wide receiver who's a sophomore. Um, and I think that's a fair and awesome pick. Um, he didn't provide any explanation, but uh, Harry is a uh, elite wide receiver prospect from uh, the 2015-2016 class um, who had a nice freshman year. Um, seems poised for a big uh, sophomore season, 6'4", 220 pounds, big dude, but also fast, great hands, the whole thing. Um, he's going to be, you know, ASU's next master of the back shoulder fade, most likely. Um, and, uh, yeah, he'll be, he'll be, uh, he'll be great this year. Um, and then he's got the twin running backs, Demario Richard and Kalen Balaj, uh, both seniors had kind of disappointing years last year, but I think that could have been some offensive flux a little bit and just, um, you know, maybe some lack of utilizing them perfectly to their strengths. Um, you know, both of them bring a little bit something different to the table but they're both big dudes um and we've you know we've talked about this at length the last couple of years just wanting to see more just kind of downhill running from this asu offense because they've got the backs to do it um so it'll be interesting to see if they do that and then defensively um one of my favorite defensive players in the pac-12 i think he's gonna be, have a breakout year jojo wicker uh defensive end junior um, he was a guy UCLA pursued heavily. Um, I don't know that USC was on too much, but he's uh, a, an LA prospect. Um, there were some motor questions about him in high school, but he seems to have solved those in a big way. Um, get very good pass rusher up front, but also has the size to kind of man a few different positions up front. Um, he's going to be, I think, one of the premier defensive linemen in the league. Then he has Coran, Coran Crump, uh, uh, outside linebacker junior, and Christian Sam, inside linebacker junior. So. Uh, Chris obviously is thinking the front is going to be a strength of uh, of ASU's defense this year, and they need that. Their uh, their front uh, was not great last year against the run, um, but hopefully with some more disciplined uh, defense and also 
maybe a little bit less aggression from uh, Todd Graham's signature uh, style blitzing all the time um, will aid the run defense a little bit. Yeah, you know, Harry, uh, excuse me, Harry has, he set the record for ASU most catches in uh, fresh, as a freshman in school history. Um, actually, he had the most catches by Pac-12 freshmen, so that's pretty cool. And uh, as far as Christian Sam goes, uh, he had a ankle sprain last year, if you remember, um, and he didn't get to play again. Um, but, you know, they really like him as a run stuffer. Uh, and he was one of the leaders of solo tackles as a sophomore. So they, they expect some big things out of him this year. Yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. So cool. Let's see. What do we got? Oh, uh, oh, do we go to, do we go to ours, the schools we cover now? I guess we have to. Yeah. You know what? I should have probably thought of it. Like what, uh, did, did you even <laughs> think about your own school? So are we doing like most important or best? Like what are we talking here? He just said big three in quotes. So, oh, so here's the thing with UCLA, and this is going to be the major caveat at the beginning of this. Um, offensively, it's like impossible to know who's actually going to be good this year because like nobody was good last year. So, I mean, Josh Rosen obviously is uh, – I'll just start. Josh Rosen is obviously one of the offensive guys. Um, and more from the standpoint of if he gets hurt again – or if he's not good, uh, the, the offense is going to be terrible. I mean, it's just not, it's going to be bad. Um, so he's number one. I think number two would probably be Colton Miller, um, who's going to be the starting left tackle. Uh, there's not a whole lot of offensive line depth on this team. Um, they luckily got a grad transfer from Miami, Sonny Adogwu, who's going to most likely start at right tackle. But beyond those, beyond the starting five and even, within the starting five, really, um, there's just, there's not a whole lot of depth behind that, that, that group of five. So, um, Miller and especially at tackle. Uh, so if Miller, you know, if Miller stays healthy, I think the offensive line could be average ish. If, uh, if he gets hurt, I think the, it drops precipitously from there. And then number three, boy, um, you could talk me into any number of guys. I could go with another offensive lineman, but that sounds boring right now. I'll go with um, I'll go with Jordan Lasley. Uh, he's a receiver. Um, he kind of came into his own last year, and he's going to uh, likely be the bell cow um, for UCLA at receiver this year. Um, I imagine he's going to be one of Rosen's primary targets. He's he has nice size. Um, he's a good athlete. Um, you know, pretty reliable catching the ball, which was an issue for UCLA all of last year with basically every receiver. Um, so I think he's he's going to make a bigger impact this year. And then defensively, um, a Darius Pickett safety. Uh, I think he's going to you know quickly vault to the top of the charts as being one of the top safeties in the Pac-12. Um, you know, I'm excited to see what uh, what Jalen Phillips does, the five-star defensive end. I think he's going to surprise some people with his ability to play this year as a true freshman on the line and actually make a big impact. Um, and then third, I'd, yeah, I'd go like a uh, like a Kenny Young, uh, middle linebacker, uh, will probably be the guy who's leading the team in tackles this year. Uh, he had a nice spring. He had a nice finish to last year. And so hopefully the lights clicked on for him in a big way. He's going to be a senior this year. So uh, those would be my three guys on defense and my three guys on offense for UCLA. That was the big three update for UCLA Bruins. <laughs> I totally forgot. 
which it means I left out the Arizona Wildcats. And also Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm glad you found something productive to do while I was rambling on for a solid two and a half minutes. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I forgot about that, so I do apologize. But I, I think it's a good list. Um, you know, it's similar with SC, like you, pretty much you're talking about Josh Rosen. I think Rosen's going to have a huge year. Um, I've been telling people that just because, you know, being out last year, you have, I mean, he was the man, like the, the LA quarterback. And then you bring, you know, there's like Jared Goff now, Sam Darnold emerges, Philip Rivers came to town. It's like, Hey man, what's going on here? So I think there's got, he's going to have a chip on his shoulder. He's got a lot to prove. So I, I do think Rosen's going to have a big year. Mm-hmm. That's, there's a real chance of that, I think. Um, all right, then, so next we'll go... USC Trojans. And like I said, you know, number one, A, B, and C is Sam Darnold. He's the guy that makes everything go. Um, if Same thing, if, if something happened to him and he got hurt, I do not know what... I just do not think it would be pretty for this USC offense. So I think he, he uh, can be a Band-Aid for a lot of boo-boos that you have that you don't really get to see because Sam Darnold just fixes things. Um, so he's, you know, they're going to go as far as Sam Darnold can take them. Uh, I'm going to put, I almost didn't want to put a receiver. They got a whole bunch of receivers and you're just not like sure which ones are going to emerge. Um, but for the first time in a while, they don't really have like a real clear, like number one guy. People assume it's going to be Deontay Burnett, who's a, a true junior out of Sarah high school. And he had a huge Rose Bowl, three touchdown, you know, catches, including the, the one to tie the game at the end. Um, I, I do think he's going to have a really good year. Real soft kid, quiet kid, works real hard. He always stays late. Um, I think he'll probably be the number one target, but I think people are expecting a lot from him. I mean, he's just, you know, he's kind of more emerging later on to be that just number one go-to guy like a Juju Smith or some of the other guys that USC's had. Uh, I'm not sure if he's if he's there yet, but he, I mean, he's a really talented kid. I think he's got a shot. And they lost three uh, key offensive linemen from last year. So I think Chuma Doga. Uh, who will likely be their starting left tackle will be, uh, number three important on that list. They just can't, they can't afford to have, you know, huge breakdowns. They just have to keep, you know, rushers away from Sam Darnold as much as possible. You just can't have full breakdowns where he's just going to get killed. Um, so I'd go there. Man, defensively, I haven't even thought about this too much, but I would go, you know, with Dory Jackson being gone, I think it's really going to be important for Iman Marshall, former five star, uh, at corner to step in and really be that number one guy. He's a bigger kid. He looks more like a safety than a corner. Um, so I think he's just going to have to emerge and play lights out. Um, I think Cameron Smith, uh, the middle linebacker, he's had some really big games, really solid. He's a true junior. He came in in a, a linebacker class where he was like the fourth best linebacker coming in and came in and started to start right away. Um, so I think they're going to expect a lot out of him. And they need someone on a, on the to to really put some pressure on a quarterback. They haven't had like this elite pass rusher. I think Porter Gustin kind of has to be that guy. He's an outside linebacker out of Utah. He's a true junior also. All three of those guys are juniors. Um, I think he's going to have to have a big year, Dave, to come in and, and just wreak some havoc. They haven't had that individual player that just comes in, rushes off the edge, and just causes problems all by himself. So they, they need someone to kind of be that guy. Yeah, I mean, and I think you're right on the offensive end, too. I mean, I think it's so much hinges on Sam Darnold and I think, uh, his protection. Um, if they do get, if they do get that, if they do get protection for Darnold, it's hard to imagine the offense taking any kind of step back from last year. If anything, it'll probably leap forward a little bit more. Um, but yeah, that, those all sound like good picks to me. 
So we have the mountain schools, and I did get uh, separate emails from them uh, with more information on each player that they chose. So if you want, okay. I can uh, read those. Which one do you want to start with? Why don't we start with Colorado? All right. Colorado Buffaloes. So our buddy Adam Munster-Tiger sent this in. So on offense, he has running back Philip Lindsay. So we've seen a lot of him. The Tasmanian Devil returns for a senior season after gaining 1,579 yards from scrimmage in 2016. The Denver native is also the heart and soul of Colorado's team from a leadership standpoint. He's a stud. We like Philip. I love Lindsay. Yeah. Love Philip Lindsay. He's tough as hell and he's small, but he just like takes a beating. Um, got a lot of balance. Yeah, I really like him. I think he's a really good back. So having a senior, some senior leadership there. They lost a lot of seniors on defense, but they're going to need him to, uh, you know, try to get that, get back to a bowl game again. I think Lindsay's going to have to have a big year. Two, he has, uh, offensive tackle Jeremy Irwin, uh, Colorado starting left tackle. He earned second-team all-conference honors last season after leading the Buffs in knockdown blocks and direct touchdown blocks. Uh, he also allowed just half a sack on the season. Do you know what cool. direct touchdown blocks are? No, I was going to say, um, I, I, all offensive line stats strike me as really weird. <laughs> like Just really like kind of vaguely results-oriented and not really focused on like what you actually did. It's a, I mean, it's a hard position to assess uh statistically so i mean i get why you do it but yeah like why does pancaking even matter like sometimes you don't want to pancake a guy you don't want to fall down because you've got to hit a second block yeah you know and so it's just you know i i think they're trying to measure something and i guess being results oriented like yeah you you set the same block you always set but the running back took it for a touchdown i guess that's cool um but it just seems kind of Results-based. Yeah. Well, 30 has Shea Fields. Very familiar with him. Fields enters his final campaign in Boulder, ranked sixth in school history in receptions, and he hauls in if he hauls in seven or more touchdown passes this fall, he will break Nelson Spruce's career touchdown mark at Colorado. Man, already Spruce's record's going to go down. That's crazy. That is crazy. That is crazy. But I guess they weren't they weren't like necessarily quote unquote good during Spruce's years, um, and he they were quote-unquote good last year, so I guess it makes some sense, yeah. but yeah, no, uh, and I think the offense, I mean, the offense returns like basically everybody except for Sefo Lufau, so there's a chance they're even better offensively this year than they were last year. And they're, you're going to rely on the offense a lot more this year just because they lost so much on defense. Not that they can't, you know, rebuild that, but there was just, there seemed to be a lot of seniors, Dave, that led the defense last year. Oh, yeah, it was like fully seniors and we'll see that in a second when you go over the defense, but like there it's, it's, it's a new crew for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cornerback Isaiah Oliver as an underclassman, uh, he had to take a bit of a backseat, um, to some of the guys that they already had, but would, you know, they had a couple guys go, uh, in the NFL draft out of the secondary. He's a freak athlete. He starred on Colorado's track and field team as a decathlete the past two springs. So. Um, trying to replace some of those seniors, like we said in the secondary, Oliver, Adam seems to think Oliver has a good chance. And then outside linebacker Derek McCarthy, uh, he missed, uh, all of conference play last year due to a torn ACL. He returns as one of Colorado's most experienced and talented defenders. 
Bill McCartney's grandson is one of just uh, 10 buffs in history to be named the team captain twice. Mm. Uh, did I say that right? Derek McCartney. I think that's... I'm yeah, you call him McCarthy, but I Sorry, think it's fine. Yeah. I think it's fine. Look, we're not going back. We're McCartney's not looking backwards. We're looking forward, all right? Yeah. And then uh, inside linebacker Rich Gamboa, he recorded a you total of... You said that one wrong, too. It's Rick. Rick Gamboa. Did I say Rick? You said Rich. Dang it. What am I doing here? That's all right. No, no, no. Just go for it. Go for it. Live your dream. Live Richie. Your dream. I like to call him Richie. Uh, yeah. We'll call him Rick. Okay. He had 135 tackles last year as an underclassman. Uh, with Addison Gilman deciding to forego his season, his final season of eligibility, Gamboa is expected to be the full-time starter at Mike Linebacker, making him the quarterback of the Buffalo's defense. Woohoo! Take a shot if you had quarterback in the Buffalo's defense as your uh, bingo on the phraseology <laughs> of this podcast. Nice. All right. So good list there. That's that's uh, Dave. That's your team. Are they gonna? That's they gonna make a that's bowl? That's my team. I think they make a bull game. I think they, I don't know what I said last time, cause I think we discussed this six weeks ago. Uh, but I think they make a bull game. Um, I don't know if they're gonna repeat last year where they went like 11 and 1 or whatever they did, but, um, I think they make a bull game. I think that's, I think that's in the CADs. Okay. And then we also, we want to talk some, the last team in the South. Utah Utes. So Dan Sorensen, uh, wrote in and he had, let's see, for offense, our buddy, our pal, Troy Williams at quarterback. So he's a returning starter. He had the best spring of all the quarterbacks. And we're both Troy Williams fans, but I think he needs to uh, to really show us something this year. There was just some up and down moments last year. Yeah, being, uh, being the best quarterback among the Utah quarterbacks is like, that's not, that's, I mean, that's not saying a whole lot, right? I mean, we, we've seen... How many years of Utah quarterbacks not being good? It's been a lot. Yeah. It's been a lot. So uh, we're setting a higher standard for you, Troy. Um, and, you know, that'll push you on to greatness. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't – I don't think he was great last year. Um, I think this year it's going to be a little bit different because he won't have uh, necessarily as good of an offensive line to lean on. Um, so he'll have to have made some strides, and it'll be interesting to see if he has, um, you know, just being the best of the Utah quarterbacks is not saying a whole lot. So uh, hopefully he has. And he's going to be throwing to Raylon Singleton. Uh, he's the best returning receiver for the Utes. He has a tremendous big play potential. More of an over-the-top guy than a burner. And then who else he has? He has uh, uh, Armand, Armand Shine. Armand Shine. Okay, let's see. Oh, he put that down below. Okay, so he was a starter before Joe Williams came back. Uh, he was starting to emerge as a premier back before an ACL injury sidelined him. Yeah, so if you remember, he ended up starting the season when Joe Williams retired, and then Joe Williams came back. Yeah. And then he got hurt. So basically, this will be like 2016. This is this will be his chance to uh, come back. Cool. Uh, let's see. We have on the defensive side, Lowell Latuieli. Lotelele. Lotelele. Oh, yeah, duh. Okay. Um, that's the one I've heard for. Uh, he's possibly the best defensive tackle in the Pac-12. Played injured all last year, but he's 100% now. So I didn't realize he was injured all last year. He was. I didn't think it was all of last year, but uh, he was out for a considerable period of time. I, I think Kylie Fitz was out, I think, for the entire year. Yeah, he had, he missed most of last year. He's on the list, too. 
Um, wow. So he has them both. I didn't think. Okay. Well, anyway, Lowell is uh, maybe the best defensive tackle in the league, um, and we'll probably show that on the field this year. Yeah. Um, Utah always has great defensive linemen, and uh, he's gonna be one. I think Kylie Fitz, who we just mentioned, he'll be another one. So uh, Dan says he's the best returning pass rusher for Utah, but he missed most of last year, too, with an injury. But he's healthy, and they really expect big things uh, from Kylie Fitz. Yep. And then Chase Hansen, strong safety. He's a big play safety. He's a hard hitter, and he should be among the best in the conference this year. Unquestioned, the leader of the Utah defense. All right. Sweet. Okay, so that's Pac-12 South. We got a lot All of right, then, then we then we jump to um uh to, to Cal or actually to Stanford if we're going south to north. We'll go south. Okay, so we'll do Stanford. Here we go. Stanford Cardinal. All right, I'll take over reading for a bit um, since I've got RJ's stuff right here. Uh, RJ Abadia says on offense. Number one for him is Bryce Love, who's absolute lightning out of the backfield, RJ says. Um, I think that's right. Um, I think given the way they used Christian McCaffrey all these years, um, they'll probably just try to give the same stuff to Bryce Love. And uh, he's shown some ability with the ball um, when he's been given an opportunity. Uh, Last year, he, he showed some real flashes at times. So I think with, uh, you know, knowing that he's going to be the guy this year, I think it'll make him uh, even more effective. And when Christian was out or like in the bowl game when he didn't play, I think I don't, it didn't seem like they changed a whole lot. Uh, they just expect him to come in and, and do crazy things out of the backfield. And Love's certainly capable of doing that. For sure. Uh, number two, he's got offensive lineman, offensive guard, Nate Herbig. Uh, he says, quote, the big island, quote, should be an all-conference performer at guard. Um, sounds about right. Um, I think Stanford's offensive line is going to be great in general this year, so you could probably pick any of, you know, four guys, but uh, Herbig is a definitely fine choice. And then number three, he cheated badly, um, and he picked three different tight ends. Uh, <laughs> Dalton Schultz, Scooter Harrington, and Caden Smith, but they all are basically the same guy. It's the Stanford tight end. Um, they shouldn't even just... You know what they should not do? They, they should not have names. It should be like NCAA football, and it should just be like Stanford tight end number one, <laughs> Stanford tight end number two, and Stanford tight end number three. And just, uh, and just you know, those are their titles when they're at Stanford. But, um, yeah, they're all, they're all, you know, big, long dudes who are strong and will catch everything over the middle and, you know, will just make every, you know, every third down play that's like a third and four, suddenly they'll get, you know, 12 yards every single time and it'll be fun to watch for you know the 14 stanford fans um <laughs> are there more are there more stanford fans than there are stanford tight ends in the nfl what do you, what's the Ooh, now that's a question <laughs> now that's a real question I, i've got to figure there's a few more fans but it's it's got to be close it's got to be close um <laughs> so that's well, and if they stanford. count here's the thing the stanford tight ends who graduated probably also are stanford fans uh-huh. so yeah, it, there only has to be one more fan on top of those <laughs> tight ends to make it. So basically, we're banking on there being at least one person who cares about Stanford football. Yeah. If you're a Stanford uh, fan, tweet us or email us. Let us know. We don't really hear from Stanford fans. That's that's so, part of the So just uh, my attacks on the Bay Area today have included Cal. You're no longer going to have an athletic program. <laughs> 
and Stanford, you have 14 fans. So there we go. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm sure we'll get lots of fun tweets. Uh, and defensively, uh, RJ has Quentin Meeks, uh, perhaps the best cover corner and perhaps Stanford's deepest and best secondary ever. There's been a lot of pub that uh, this will be a very, very good secondary. Um, Justin Reed should be a standout at safety. Uh, so those are his top two guys, which for a Stanford defense to have the top two guys in the secondary, um, that's that's different for sure. And then number three is Harrison Phillips, who's Stanford's best returning defensive lineman, perhaps the most important and toughest player to replace on the team, which stands to reason Stanford doesn't have a whole lot of depth up front. And uh, Phillips, basically when he's been healthy the last couple of years, he's been dynamite, but um, just staying healthy has been a big key for him. Yeah, they've been able – I don't think they've been had a very deep defensive line the last couple of years, but they've always had standout players like Solomon or whatever, and I, I think Phillips can be that guy. But he's he does have to stay healthy. They, you need that kind of consistent play. They didn't need to have a lot of bodies up there, but they need to keep them all working. And uh, if he's not in there working, I think it's just going to be some problems for Stanford up front. For sure, for sure. Um, okay, so next is <laughs> – yeah, Excuse clear me. your throat because you're going to have to do this one too. California Golden Bears. So I had a strategy here, which was I was going to read Stanford's <laughs> and then you would have to be stuck with this one. Our man Ryan Gorsey uh, has uh, some thoughts on his top threes for both offense and defense. So I will start now um, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to take a breath at some point. Um <laughs> On offense, he adds a note at the beginning, no quarterback because no one's been named. Um, so they don't have a starting quarterback yet, so he's uh, going off of other guys. Number one, Demetrius Robins- Robertson, uh, wide receiver. Um, Ryan says, any receiver who can break freshman records set by Keenan Allen and Deshaun Jackson is going to be the centerpiece of an offense. And Robertson, a freshman All-American, has the speed, quickness, and explosiveness to be a terror for Pac-12 defenses for the next two years. Um Seems right. Seems 100% right. Um, I watched a decent amount of Cal last year, and Demetrius Mar- Robertson definitely stood out as a uh, as a big time threat on the uh, on uh, at receiver. So that was that that seems dead on to me. Uh, number two, Trey Watson, running back, the most complete tailback in the Cal backfield. Watson has shown speed, strength, balance, vision, and explosiveness, both carrying the rock and as a receiver, with 32 catches for 348 yards in his career. He boasts that he has the best hands in the nation, and while that may be a stretch, he hasn't dropped a single pass thrown to him in a game. New OC Bo Baldwin is known for his offense's ability to adapt to talent, and it feels like Watson's unique skill set will be fully utilized. Uh, and then number three is Melquise Stovall, or Melquise Whichever. No, I uh, say Melquise, but yeah. Melquise. Uh, he was a former USC commit, if I'm not mistaken. He was, yeah. Um, Stovall was unable to participate fully in spring ball, but he's a lightning bug who can be used in multiple formations as a slot back, tailback, and inside receiver. With a year under his belt, he'll be more of a more a part of the offense with sweeps and pitches and inside screens that allow him to get the ball in open field and make people miss. Um, so looking at that, uh, not an offensive lineman or a QB mentioned among the bunch. It's two wide receivers and a running back. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, we like, we don't like know who's going to be the quarterback yet. Uh, Stovall, I liked a lot. I was, I just liked watching him. He's one of those guys where yeah, he's not the biggest dude in the world, but he can make a lot of things happen. But I, I think this offense, they're going to rely on the run game. I think Trey Watson's going to have a huge year. If he doesn't, 
Um, I think they're gonna have a problem, but I think he's. They they do have to. I think they do like like uh, Ryan said, fully utilize Trey Watson in this offense. If he's a huge part of the offense and, and puts up some big numbers, then I think Cal should be fine. All right, and then defensively, um, and this is uh, in parentheses. Ryan says. Seems like an exercise in futility based on last year, but there's a new group in town, including a former D.C. as a head coach. All right, so number one, he has Darius Allensworth, cornerback. Cal's top cornerback returns with 19 starts and 31 games played as a fifth-year senior, and while he had his clashes with the previous coaching staff, he's completely bought in with the new group, especially new DB coach and NFL vet Gerald Alexander. He's got 21 pass breakups under his belt, and that's after missing six games thanks to injury last season. He's a possible late-round NFL talent with a nose for the ball and an inquisitive mind. If he's healthy, one side of the field is taken care of. Uh, the inquisitive Darius Allensworth. Uh, number two, James Looney, defensive line. Looney served as a 4-3 defensive tackle this year, but while he's quick and athletic, he's just not big enough to be a true 3-4 nose, and that's why he'll be moved along the line depending on the situation. In a four-down front, he'll, he'd slide back inside. Looney is also someone who's benefited from the coaching change, jibing with the new defense-first defense, defense first philosophy. While he was on the sidelines for spring, he'll be repped hard in training camp and should be a good interior pass rusher in those four-down situations. And then number three is Cameron Saffel. Saffel? Yeah. Uh, linebacker. So. When ca- What's that? No, I believe you're right. I believe that's how you said Okay. But I'm terrible at this. Uh, Names are hard. When Cal moves to the nickel formation, the Bears will have two down linemen, but both will be pass-rushing outside linebackers. Because of the switch to the 3-4, those two will be Cal's best pass rushers, and in all likelihood, both former defensive linemen. That was the most convoluted explanation. So when Cal moves to the nickel formation, the Bears will have two down linemen. All right, so that's point one. But both will be pass-rushing outside linebackers. But now follow me forward. Because of the switch to the 3-4... In all likelihood, both are former defensive linemen. So they're going to be down linemen, but they're going to be pass rushing outside linebackers, but both are actually former defensive linemen. They used to be linemen, linemen. yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the top of that class is Cameron Saffel. An explosive, violent, quick, and powerful defensive end, Saffel has the narrow waist and broad shoulders that made him a perfect... Uh, like a these sound, sometimes these sound like Victorian <laughs> descriptions of like women in like 1850s. A narrow waist but broad shoulders. I fainted. Ample um, bosom on the, yeah, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, has the narrow waist and broad shoulders that made him a perfect, made him a, made, no, made him perfect to switch to outside linebacker. I think I that's guess. what he meant, yeah. Yeah. He still has to learn how to play in coverage, but his speed and athleticism allow him a lot of flexibility, and he made great strides this spring. He's one of the team's emotional leaders, so he'll be the tip of the spear in many regards. Funny, before we jump into this, uh, when you know we do podcasts and you read people's questions, for the most part, when like scout people send us copy to read, it's pretty clean. But when you're trying to read, like especially something that's long, and then there's like a grammatical error, and you're trying to fix it, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, it's usually a lot worse when like fans will write into the podcast. You're trying to do it on the fly, but it, when you're expecting it to be like very clean, then it can kind of screw yeah. up a little bit. I don't know if you can agree. kind of throw you off a little bit. Yeah, kind of throw you. Love you, right? Um, no, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's not 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 your fault at all. Um, I kind of feel with the defense. Oh, I was I was confessing my love for uh, Ryan Gorsey, not you, Ryan. Oh, okay. We yeah. love you, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. He's uh, yeah. no, Ryan's usually really good with that stuff. 
It was just a little. It was a little verbose, uh, but that's fine. It was a little long. I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna pretend that it wasn't. But we got through it, and that's all that matters. Yeah. The uh, I kind of my feeling on this defense. The, the the hire for Justin Wilcox is baffling to me. Um, he's had some success other places. I saw him at USC. It just wasn't that successful. It will be like a multiple front. There will be guys moving around, like you said. Um, you know, with Saffle and stuff. Um, I kind of feel Dave, it's going to be like. Especially because the, the defense was so bad last year and the last couple of years, just be like, wow, that's pretty good. Like that, like, I think you'll be really impressed. Like no, it won't be like a top defense in the conference, but it'll be like respectable, or it'll just be dreadful again. Like I kind of feel it's going to be one of those two. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, well, I think, I mean, I think the offense has a chance to be really good. I think the defense is going to be bad. Um, I think moving to a three-four gives them maybe a chance to be a little bit better. Um, you know, sometimes when you switch things up a little bit, you find that you just had the wrong combination of parts for whatever defense you were trying to run. So switching things up might work, but, um, I just don't think you go from as bad as they were last year to, you know, even average overnight. I think it's a little bit more of a process than that. So we have, um, Oregon, Oregon state. I have stuff from both of them so I can read those, but my voice is kind of going out. I think yours probably is too. Um, where do you want to go first? Um, how about this? We'll, we'll split up Oregon State. I don't have uh, I don't have uh, uh, Steve's in front of me for Oregon. You but how Oregon about State? I'll read the names for Angie's from Oregon State, and then you do the uh, the Rock Spoilers. Okay, so we'll do Oregon State Beavers. All right. So on offense, number one overall, Ryan Nall, the big guy. I think we should just pause for five minutes here and just because we love Ryan Nall and we just want to let everyone know he's a super stud. And I'm glad Angie put him on the list. He has to be. He's amazing. Uh, yep. Oregon yep, State. Yep, yep, yep. I'm sorry. I just I just said, yep, yep, yep. Oh, yep. sorry. Yes. I said we're, it a bunch of times. We're big fans of the Ryan Nall. Uh, Angie says Oregon State's leading rusher from a year ago returns. He was not healthy all of last season. He still rushed for 951 yards and 13 touchdowns, including four to end the season in the Civil War win over Oregon. And who could forget that day where he just went absolutely bonkers? Yeah, he's uh, he's a super stud. Love him. Yeah. And this sounds like uh, the next guy is like a, a Middle Gus. Eastern dessert. What is this? What's his name? <laughs> I, I feel like I should say it like Baklavaka. Uh, <laughs> Gus Lavaka. I think it's Lavaka, right? I believe so. Got to be Lavaka, right? I think so. There's no other way to pronounce that. It's Gus Lavaka. Gus Lavaka. Okay, for in order, so Angie says, All right. oh, in order for the Beavers to be successful on offense, the offensive line will need to be strong. The Beavers lost three multi-year starters, but Lavaca, as a true freshman in 2016, was a major bright spot on the line. So expecting him to step up uh, this year, Dave, after playing as a true freshman last year. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hmm. Sounds about right. And then, uh, and then finally, we've got Noah Togiai. Togiai. I like that. I, I, we'll go with that. We're I probably. Think I, I think I did it. Yeah. We've got some real. We got some real ones below that. Yeah. By the way. I'm glad Defense you volunteered for the names because it's tough. Um, Togiai was injured in the first quarter of Game Two in 2016. A major blow to the Beavers' offense. Uh, six foot four, 246 pound tight end played as a true freshman in 2015, and nearly averaged 7.3 yards per catch in 2016 without him. The passing game was nearly extinct. So, uh, 
That's our, that's our, is that our uh, second tight end mentioned? Or I guess fourth, since Stanford put three. Yeah, we, we got to count three tight ends among Stanford <laughs> ones. The three-headed monster. The, uh... Okay, we're going to do defense right now, but I need to stretch before this first one. Good luck. Okay. All right, you ready? Yeah. Bright Ugwo Egbu. Ugwo Egbu. I think I would go with it. I think I'm going to... I think it's right. I think it's dead on. I think, I think his family heard that and they're like, damn, that guy knows his names. Yes. Well, as a sophomore in 2016, Ugwo Egbu accounted for 54 tackles and 11 tackles for loss in nine games, but then a foot injury sidelined him the last three games of the season. He's an aggressive linebacker and will be a team leader on defense this season. I learned I was horribly wrong. I just Googled it. It's Ugwebu. <laughs> Ugwebu. Ugwebu. Okay, I, yeah, I was going W-O-E, a little bit would, more. It wouldn't be whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing more of the, I was doing more of the, like, um, the Pacific Islander pronunciation, which is basically just try to pronounce everything and you'll generally hit it just dead on. And I, uh, I screwed it up. I'm sorry. Yeah. If you, if you have like everyone. three vowels in a row, you have to like try to pronounce each one of them, right? Like it's. Yep. All right, uh, number two, Xavier Crawford. So he is a freshman cornerback a year ago, and he burst onto the scene, tallied 70 tackles and 11 pass breakups on his way to earning freshman All-American honors. With the graduation of Treston DeCoud, Crawford will be a veteran in the secondary. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, yeah. That's, all a, right, that's right. a lot of breakups. Okay. That's like a breakup a game. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, okay. Just going to work on this one for a second. <laughs> Number three, um, Manasseh Hungaloo. I think we're pretty close. Um, I feel pretty good about that one. I felt pretty good. Manasseh um, Hungaloo. Manasseh Hungaloo. Okay. Uh, he was a senior linebacker and had a breakout year last season with 83 tackles, five pass breakups, and three fumble recoveries. In 2016, things seemed to click for him. And he was one of the team's top defenders by the end of the season. Nice. Yeah. All so, right. Thanks to Very Angie good, for Andy. those. Thanks so much. Yeah. And then we'll go next. We're going to go to Oregon Ducks. And I don't think you have any of these, right? I don't have any of these. Unfortunately, you're, you're, this is very, you're... this is Gorsy like. Uh, so, uh, bear with me. Steve Summers, thanks for sending these in. Uh, Gorsi like me, these are verbose as well. Uh, it was funny, like I, I solicited these from everybody and some people just wrote names, didn't have any explanation. I said basically, give me a name and like a, you know, a one line reason why. Some people did that, but you know, a bunch of people didn't do any reasons why. And then some people gave like dissertations. So beggars can't be choosers. We're going to, but we got information from everybody, which is cool. Um, I feel like beggars can be choosers. <laughs> it's just, it depends on what you're sacrificing, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we could sacrifice. I think I actually had, he had, he gave like a long explanation, a short explanation. Maybe I'll read the short one, but I'll, I'll start off here. So, uh, running back Royce Freeman, uh, his first guy I mentioned, obviously super stud. He could have gone to the NFL draft last season, but stuck around in order to finish requirements for his degree. And he will enter the 2017 season as a postgraduate. Uh, last season, uh, was a down season for Freeman as he finished the year with a, a net 945 yards and nine touchdowns. 
This is down from 1,836 yards and 18 touchdowns in 2015. Wow, that's a huge drop-off. Part of the reason for the sharp decline in production were the, some nagging injuries uh, that haunted Freeman all season long, but perhaps a bigger issue was the change in the offensive coordinator when Scott Frost moved on to Central Florida and uh, Matt Lubick took over as the offensive coordinator job. The Ducks coaching staff in 2016 was a mess, and the response for the the reasons for the mess was still a mystery. What is certain is that Willie Taggart's regime will produce more uh, dedication from the players and the new coaching staff in 2017. The Ducks' offensive line is a year more experienced, and the new co-offensive coordinators uh, appear to be determined to use Freeman's size, 6'1", 231, to the Ducks' advantage. Expect a more physical style of running from Freeman this year. Okay? Uh, Justin Herbert is the sophomore quarterback. His freshman season has ups and downs, but what was clear, uh, there was a great talent uh, package in Herbert's six foot six, two 225-pound frame. In his first year, he made seven starts and threw for over 1,900 yards and 19 touchdowns. During the spring game in April, he clearly showed that he had distanced himself from the rest of the Oregon quarterback core. But the downside uh, that two of his backups, Terry Wilson and Travis Johnson, left the program seeing there was going to be little chance of playing while Herbert was in Oregon. That leaves true freshman uh, Braxton Burmeister as the other scholarship quarterback on the roster. So only two scholarship quarterbacks. Ugh, that's rough. No, no graduate transfers this year that I know of. Um, okay. With only two scholarship quarterbacks headed into the fall camp, that means we won't see Herbert carrying the ball much in 2017, as it will be essential to keep him healthy for the year. And then uh, another graduate, Senior wide receiver Darren Carrington uh, can be a major game changer while he went through grow up pains, growing up pains off the field. He did demonstrate it's just growing pains. Yeah, it's, it's just growing pains. He went like, through. He said he went through growing up pains. So I guess I guess that's. I mean, like a growing up pain is like, I don't know, your head bumps into something because you're a little bit taller than you were. I don't know. Or just like. Man, I, I put up three inches over the summer. My tibia hurts. Like, or... I, I guess I, I want to delve into this a little bit. How could you be alive in the 80s and not know it's just growing pains? Right. right? <laughs> like it's just growing pains. That's all it is. Did you uh, – right. I really wanted uh, that living room. Oh, wait, no. Is that – that those Silver Spoons. Is that mind. Packs of Life or is that Growing Pains? No, Silver Spoons was the one I was talking about with Ricky Silver Schroeder. Spoons. Silver Spoons. Um, that's where he had like a dragon's lair game and like a train and all that kind of stuff. That was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one was growing pains was the one with uh, Mike Seaver and, um, yeah. Yeah. Which one? Ah, uh, now I'm and the guy it. died. Alan Thicke. He, uh, he passed away. Yeah. Father. Alan Thicke is dead. Um, that's a thing that, uh, that, that show started before I was born. Um, that's the one with Kurt Cameron. That's right. Kurt Cameron. Yeah. 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 Kurt Cameron. He got all like religious and stuff, right? I think he like totally changed. He got, yeah, he got super religious. And um, a lot of the, the sisters on those 80s sitcoms like end up going crazy for some reason. I don't know if. Oh, that, yeah. Um, Tina Yothers, like she, like all kind of weird stuff happened. Which one was, oh, what am I doing here? Uh, what was Facts of Life? Facts of Life was, was the with... one with the girls' dormitory or whatever. It was like, uh, that's what that was. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where that was coming from. Okay. Facts of life. What's the other one? Wasn't there one with, um, ah, it's all gone. It's all gone. It's My all brain gone. is. Bleeding. That's okay. It was a little, uh, well, anyway. A little, a little aside. 
On Car- <laughs> Carrington's growing pains, um, he did demonstrate his desire to obtain his degree by staying out of the NFL draft this spring. Instead, he will enter fall camp having earned a degree and bought into Taggart's football philosophy. So some names you should all know on the Oregon offensive side. So could be some good things there. Defensive side. Uh, family ties. Family ties was what I was thinking of. Family ties. That was the one with uh, Alex P. Keaton, Michael right? J. And Michael J. Fox. Yeah, that was his character. Mike, yeah. Yeah. And then the sister in that one, she was nuts too, because she was like the daughter of like from the mamas and the papas or whatever, and like, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like crazy, <laughs> druggy, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Justine Bateman. I Justine think. Bateman. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She had all kinds of problems. Not, we're not wishing anything bad on Justine Bateman. We just know she's had some issues, but we wish her. The we're best. just taking a stroll down memory lane, right? We now. did. I used to love watching this. I'm a little older than you, Dave, so like, you know, I used to watch those growing up. I don't know if you got to. No, watch I was watching like Nick at Night or something. Season. How do you know about these? Well, all my siblings are older than me, so oh, they would okay. watch on repeats all this stuff, and so I'd catch it through osmosis. So, like, you know, I, I've seen I've seen a ton of the Brady Bunch, and I wasn't alive for the Brady Bunch, yeah. but I've seen a ton of it. We, I think, when I was growing up, we mostly watched the reruns of the Brady Bunch, but they were really popular. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Good defensive. Good name. D- defensive side. Um, let's see if we can get any '80s sitcom references out of what he says here. Sophomore linebacker Troy Die. I think that's how you pronounce it. Maybe sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting a little loopy here at the end of the uh, old podcast of champions. Uh, as a true freshman, Troy Die was the best defensive player on the Oregon roster. He led the team in tackling and was named All Pac-12 honorable mention. He will be counted on as a team leader. On as defensive coordinator Jim Levitt hopes to improve the Ducks from one of the worst defenses in the nation. To want to compete at the Pac-12 level. And then uh, Brendan Schooler is a sophomore safety. So if Dye was the best player on the Oregon defense, and Schooler was the second best as he led the squad in interceptions with four and was the third leading tackler with a total of 74. He's a hard-nosed player and should be better in his sophomore season. Uh, Levitt will also count on him to inspire teammates on the defensive side of the ball. And then um, this is kind of weird. Strength and conditioning coach, uh, Arelli. Why does a strength coach have a weird name, man? Come on. Can it be just like Troy Smith? Arelli Odorindi, uh, I'm going to go with, but he's a coach, so it doesn't matter. So when asked if his team was soft at the start of spring workouts, Taggart said he didn't want to call them soft. He did, however, say without hesitation that he was surprised with how weak the team was physically. So... Odorindi fell into some hot water just after arriving when, on the first few workouts with the team, three players ended up hospitalized due to overexertion. After all the smoke settled, it became very clear that he didn't do anything differently than he would have done at any of the other stops, at any of the programs during the 12 years he spent as a strength and conditioning coach. The truth is that the Ducks were not physically strong and that the reason the former, that the former coaching, I think it means the former coaching staff are no longer at Oregon. Strength coaching staff. So Oregon's poorest defense could improve if the players are strong enough to compete, and it's Order Rindy's job to facilitate that goal. I do remember that happening. I don't. I probably butchered his name, so I apologize for that. I remember the suspension. The explanation afterwards sounds like, um, well, it sounds like spin to me. <laughs> um, I mean, three dudes were hospitalized. Like, I mean, I, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but like. Maybe you did it at other schools, but whatever you, 
look, when people get hospitalized because of the way you work them out, you're probably doing something wrong. Like that's just, come on, let's let's use our let's use our noodles for this one. Um, so he was suspended for like a month too. It's not like he was suspended for like a day. He was suspended for a month for that. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, he's he's apparently the third most important piece of that defense, which should tell you everything you didn't know about Oregon's defense this year. <laughs> I I like it, the out of the box thinking though from Summers on yeah. that one. A guy who was suspended for a month, uh, yeah, who, who who hospitalized three dudes is uh, is, the, is the third most important aspect of that defense. I feel like the longer the podcast, like Dave has a. Uh, doesn't have a great snarky filter, but he does have something that kind of keeps it just from overflowing. And yeah. then once we get to like hour and a half point in the <laughs> podcast, that filter starts to like wither away. It's just yeah, really... it's it's sort of like, you know, you just have to replace these things over time. Like <laughs> it's just one of those things that requires constant maintenance and I'm you know, just not not there right now. All Washington right. schools. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do Washington. That's the one I have in front of me. Okay, here we go. Washington Huskies. <laughs> Offense. Uh, number one, Jake Browning, returning Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. You know what? I want to give Chris Fetters a hand because these are succinct, and I appreciate that. Uh, Jake Browning is the returning Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year, and he is very much deserving of being the number one on this list for Washington. Um, you know, I think he's got some... Some limitations we saw last year, um, when he goes against super elite defenses that have tons of athleticism, he's going to look a little bit more pedestrian than he will against uh, some of the other programs. But uh, by and large, he's a, he's a quarterback that I think nine other Pac-12 teams would want starting for him, at least. Um, so that's, that's pretty big. Uh, number two, Miles Gaskin, nearly 2,700 yards, 100 yards per game in first two seasons running the ball for UW. Uh, yeah, Gaskin's uh, a lot of fun to watch. Um, he and uh, he and Coleman combined for a ton last year. And then Dante Pettis, one of the best punt returners in the game, leading returning receiver with 1,500 career yards. He's going to look to take on uh, even more uh, receiving-wise um, with John Ross being gone um, and uh, even more on special teams most likely as well. Um, and then defense, uh, Vita Vea, uh, potential top 10 NFL draft pick next year at defensive tackle. He's a contender. Uh, with Lodalele for uh, probably the best defensive tackle in the league. Azim Victor, heart and soul of UW's defense from the Mike spot um, at linebacker. And then Keyshawn Bieria, uh, leading returning tackler from last year's playoff team, five fumble recoveries. Um, you probably expect this defense to be good again. Probably expect the offense to be good again. Can probably expect Washington to be good again. Yeah, when you, when you look at, even if you're a casual Pac-12 football fan, you're not like a Washington fan, You've probably heard of all those guys, right? I mean, that says something like, okay, that's very succinct, but that's a, it's a good group. It's going to be a really talented team. You know, you have a great coaching staff there. Uh, they're going to be one of the favorites to win the Pac-12. Yeah, absolutely. Are you a Mike? When you do Mike linebacker, do you do the M I K all caps? You do M I K E. I'm a M I K E guy. I don't know what you do. You know what I do? Um, I I drop this nonsense about Mike. <laughs> Will and Sam, and I just call them strong side, weak side, and middle. I like that. Or I just say outside. Because, I mean, there's so many different packages and so many different things that I think it's just kind of meaningless unless you're on the team. What even is the Mike linebacker? What even is the Sam linebacker? What are they even doing on a particular play? I think it helps just to give them their like place on the field designations more than anything, so they're outside and they're inside. That's my take on it. 
All right. Because I'm in the I'm in the business of explaining this to other people, not like trying to, you know, transcribe what a coach tells me. Yeah. All right. We got one last program to do. This is taking a lot of time. One tweet created all of this, and we still got more stuff. Uh, Washington State Cougars. So, buddy Barry Bolton, uh, with the very deep voice. I'm Such gonna, a deep voice. I'm not gonna do this in a deep voice because my, literally my throat is killing me right now. Um, so much talking. Yeah, but I think it was just kind of hurting coming in. So this is uh, you know, we're gonna rub some dirt on it, Dave. Play injured sometimes. <laughs> please don't, please don't rub dirt <laughs> on your like vocal cords. <laughs> That's not gonna sound good. It's <laughs> not gonna be good podcasting. No. Um, so we didn't do a podcast for six weeks. We're going to give you like a two hour podcast. <laughs> um, Dave's kids are going to be running around screaming. They haven't been fed for days. What, what's going on here? Okay. So for but that's off- unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, on offense, point. he has Luke Fall. Nope. Duh. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, so he's on pace to become the Pac 12's uh, all time leader in both passing yards and touchdowns, which, you know, even if you're not a stats guy, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, their left guard, Cody O'Connell, he's a junior this past season, but captured the rare honor of unanimous All-America. And uh, he also has the running backs collectively. So uh, James, so this is another cheat. James Williams, Keith Harrington, and Gerald Wicks, and Jamal Murrow uh, form one of the nation's top backfields, which is crazy for Mike Leach uh, offense, but their running backs are studs. Last year, they combined for a thousand yards plus in both rushing and receiving. One of four teams in the nation to do so, and all of them are back in 2017. I don't mind that cheat. Do you? No, that's fine. That makes sense to me. Uh, it is important. I think that the running backs are a key part to this Washington State offense, which you wouldn't, you know, just say off the top of your head. You think that. All right. On defense, this will be good. Uh, defensive end Hercules. That's awesome. Matafa. There's a, a Mata'afa, po- I believe. Mata'afa, okay, because of the apostrophe in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Mata'afa, okay. Uh, 47 tackles, 13 and a half, uh, for loss, five sacks last year as a sophomore, and he's capable of much more. Uh, linebacker Peyton Puller, uh, Pellure, P-E-L-L-U-E-R, Pellure? Sure. Okay. Uh, has led the team in tackles each of the past two years. Jeez, I should know that. And is on pace to finish top 10 all time in program history. That's pretty good. And, uh, this one, DB Robert. No, I think it's Robert, um, Taylor. <laughs> That's a good one. Last year, he was, uh, Washington State's, I'm sorry. Last year, Washington State's defense, f- uh, funneled a lot to another hard hitting former Juco safety. Named Shalom Luani. Now, with the Raiders, given how improved, confident Taylor looked this spring, a repeat situation might be in offering. Uh, in the, the offing. Well, in, in the, the offing for the Cougs defense in 2017. Oh, do you have this one? No. Okay. No. In I'm the just picking it up. I don't, I'm picking I it left. up. I'm picking it up. I'm. I'm I'm seeing where it's going. I'm, I'm seeing the play develop in front of me. I think he left an F. Okay, that's fine. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, that's what Barry Bolton has to say about the Washington State defense. Yeah, yeah, that was good stuff. That was good stuff. We just finished them all. They're all done. We did. Um, we do have some more tweets. We have some questions. One of the topics we'll I'll try to do this real briefly. Pac-12 Media Day is coming up. Um. 
was it the 25th and 26th of July, I believe, if I'm not mistaken? I believe so, and just give a brief thing about Pac-12 Media Days. Just if you're not in the media, maybe you don't know what this is. It's basically um, a little showcase in L.A. where they bring out um, a couple of players and a coach and the head coach from every single Pac-12 team to L.A., where they just sit them in front of all the journalists who cover the Pac-12 and a bunch of the TV stations and all this stuff, and they have to do a bunch of interviews, basically so all of these you know media entities can write their previews for the season um, with content from every single coach. And it's probably an outdated whole thing, but it's kind of fun and weird. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, it's typically at the end of July every single year. And they split up over two days. Half the schools go one day, half the schools go the other. But the other, when you're not going, then they do a lot of promos for the Pac-12 network and they, you know, they'll have little games and they'll, you know, do interviews. So you'll see these kind of spots throughout the season. Like they'll have David Shaw saying, you know, I'm the head coach of Staring Football. You're watching the Pac-12 network or something like that. So they record all that stuff during this time. Now the problem is with the new NCAA rule that doesn't allow two a days, fall camps moved up and I believe three or four teams in the Pac-12, I can only confirm the ASU uh, so far, starts um, starts fall camp before Pac-12 Media Day starts. So if you're in fall camp, it's really hard to fly your head coach and three best players to Los Angeles to talk to the media when you're supposed to be practicing. Yeah, it's it seems ridiculous to me. Why wouldn't they just have Media Days a week earlier? Yeah. Poorly run. Um, so I tried to solicit. I'll get. We have some responses. So the best one was from Chris Cartman for ASU. He said the situation's really a mess and poorly thought out by the Pac-12, especially because its media days not only coincide with the start of practice, but also the biggest AAU tournament week of the summer. Pac-12 yeah, media the days, final weekend of July is usually like crazy for basketball recruiting as well. Yeah. So they should have been prior to the week of July 25th. ASU's first practice is the morning of July 25th, and it will have another practice the morning of July 26th. Then Todd Graham will fly to Vegas to be at ASU's single day at the Pac-12 Media Day on July 27th. Okay, so it must be the 26th and 27th. He'll be back in Tempe for the tentative practice the next day on July 28th. It's possible ASU doesn't practice on July 28th and instead practice on the 29th. And he said for his schedule personally, he's going to Tempe from Tempe to Vegas on the 26th in the afternoon for 5 p.m. start of the basketball evaluation period. Then he's going to fly to L.A. on the morning of the 27th, then back to Vegas late in the afternoon the same day and staying there until the 28th at night. So that's kind of crazy. Um, Oregon State's actually starting their camp before then, too. But Angie was told they would just fly down Tuesday evening, spend all day Wednesday, and then Thursday morning at Pac-12 Media Day, and then fly back and have evening practices on Thursday. So teams are... And, and people that cover the team are going to have to like, that's the other thing. Like, will your media members be able to go to Pac-12 media day? Because they have to be covering your team. So it's going to be a scramble for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be nuts. Um, I think we had, let's see, Utah doesn't start until Friday the 28th. So they're in the clear. Um, uh, Stanford's in the clear. Cal's in the clear. Uh, yeah. They don't start till July I, I think 30th. UCLA, I, I, I heard, I don't know what the exact date is, but I think they'll be in the clear. I don't think they're going to start until 31st or August 1st. Yeah, I think Washington hadn't heard yet. Um, yeah, no word on Washington. 
um, which is kind of weird. And then USC starts like the day after. So, and it's, you know, if you're in LA, it's a little easier to do it. But if you're, you know, you're a beat writer covering Arizona State and you're like, all right, camp starts the 25th. Um, you know, camping out and ready to go. It's like, oh, nope, you got <laughs> you have to fly to, to LA in the middle of it and try to, and really try to match whatever their travel schedule is. Because you're, you know, if you, if you could come back a day later, you're missing stuff. Right. Okay. Um, are we, I think we're done. You don't want to read any of those emails? Are we, are they, did we have any emails? All right. Let me, let me dive in here real quick. Real quick. Just to Uh, see. We've we've got a, we've got a great email from Devin who says audio boom does not work. Um, which, yeah. Okay. I think it does. Uh, does. We could, we could use maybe a little bit more info there on what specifically doesn't work. Um, I think Zach said this in response to our last podcast, so I'm going to read it. It's a long one, but um, maybe it's a little bit worthwhile for us. Hey, Ryan and Dave. Something I've noticed as a Pac-12 fan and premium member of both Bro and the USC board is the constant complaining about TV times and Dan Weber's rants that USC isn't on ABC primetime every Saturday. What I haven't heard is anyone pointing out the financial reality of the situation. 2016 was the most annual revenue earned in history for every athletic department in the Pac-12. Yes, even USC. And even crazier, 2017 will beat 2016, and the trend will continue through the conclusion of the current rights deal. I guess the counter to this is that we are not getting what the SEC and Big Ten are getting on a dollar basis, which is a fair point, until you literally dig one level deeper, looking at you, Weber, to find that there is a much more engaged and profitable market with those schools. If you if you travel through the South, what's on at almost every bar or restaurant 365 days a year, the SEC Network? Have you ever been to a single establishment anywhere that has the Pac-12 Network on when it's not showing a live game? I think you can also figure out the disparity in general fan passion by looking at the spring game figures. The top four total schools, all SEC or Big Ten, had a bigger turnout than the top five Pac-12 programs combined. So now to the scheduling. I get the irritation of the night games better than most. I actually live in NYC and have to stay up until 2 a.m. to watch both Rod Gilmore and Jim Mora be bad at their jobs. But here's <laughs> the deal. ESPN and Fox paid us all that money that we're using to pay coaches, $3 million a year, shut up Rich Rod and Mora, new state-of-the-art facilities, and stadium upgrades to fill airtime even if it's 10.30 Eastern. So, in conclusion, next time a fan complains about our revenue compared to our rival conferences, ask if they've changed cable providers to get the Pac-12 network. I have which, by the way, would force DirecTV to pay for the network if enough people left because of it. Next time they complain about TV times, ask if they want if they went to the spring game, because as long as our fan bases have second-class interest, we will get second-class contracts and TV times. Rant over. I mean, I, I get the overall point, which is Pac-12, teams, Pac-12 fan bases generally don't care as much about Pac-12 football as SEC and Big Ten. Do they care a tenth as much? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because that, that's really the argument. Um, and if it's, if it's purely on like a rate scale, okay. Yeah. If, if the Pac-12 is getting paid, you know, 60% as much as the SEC or big 10, I think we can all sit here and say, ah, oh, that sounds about right. But like, it's going to end up being like, it's going to be, end up being like such a incredible weird disparity that, um, I think it speaks to some poor management, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, there's not that same kind of passion, but. Would bars in LA put the Pac-12 network on if they were showing like, oh, here's a classic, you know, UCLA Cal game as opposed to women's lacrosse? Like that's, you know, they, they really tout all these other sports that they put on there, which is kind of like, I mean, it's nice you put all these other sports on, but that's not what people want to see. 
you can turn on the SEC network, and for the most part, it's probably going to be football. When they launched it, the SEC network knew football would drive it. They made sure every single team within the first month was going to have a game on the SEC network. So if you're a cable company and you weren't going to be holding it, the Alabama fan base or the LSU fan base was going to be calling and saying, hey, what's going on here? They were very smart about doing it. And I think as pop, the SEC network could be an independent network. It, it's been very, it's profitable. People know it works. They still partnered with ESPN to make it happen, even though it could be, it's strong enough to stand on its own. The Pac-12, you could argue, that's the least likely one that you should have as an independent one because it's harder to stand on your own. That You should have a partner to make it work. So, I mean, I can see your argument. You can just flip it around and say, why is it doing I don't think you need to rely on fans that aren't as passionate to switch cable companies to make the network work. If that's what you're relying on, your business model is flawed. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, I think that's pretty much it we have. I don't see any other email questions okay. here. That was good. It was, I mean, obviously kind of long. Um, but hope you guys enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah. I hope they did. I hope they didn't hate it because otherwise it's a real waste of our time. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, I forgot to hit record, Dave. Can we do this one more time? <laughs> uh, you know, that that's happened to me like at least twice for real. Really? Yeah. One time I was interviewing the UCLA offensive line coach for a podcast. Um, and we got through the whole thing and it was an awesome interview. This was back at, in the early days of Mora and it was like, we went like an hour and 15 minutes and oh. then we look at the thing afterwards and we didn't record it. <laughs> oh no. Like just didn't, just didn't record it. It's one thing if you were like talking to Tracy and you didn't yeah, record. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you and, get like and the, and, the guests that and, you don't get that often. You're like, oh. Yeah, no, it's like the lost Adrian Clem recording. No one will ever hear it, but it was great. It was so good. It, it's just gone forever. Well, we were recording. We're good. We were recording. We, this is because an hour and 45 minute jobby. Um, are we going to try to do, should we tell them we're going to try to do more or should we say no, we're not? Or what do you think? Well, we're definitely going to do more. I, I don't want to like, you know, I'm, so I'm going on vacation for a couple of weeks, uh, next week. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, and then the end of July, will be coming up shortly. I mean, maybe we can do something again around Pac-12 media days, do some fall camp stuff. Um, and then uh, into fall camp, I mean, we'll start doing it more regularly because we'll be entering the season. So, Once we hit like, you know, two weeks before the year, we're probably going to start doing these things weekly again. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm fully committed to that as I remember quite clearly saying the same thing at the end of last season <laughs> that we were going to do these weekly and then we didn't. So, um, but last year, we, we buckled down and did weekly podcasts during the year, and I feel pretty good about that this year. I think we will, and we'll see what we can get from uh, Pac-12 Media Days. That Maybe we'll get to interview some of the national writers about some of the different programs and, and what they think uh, from Media Days. And uh, if you guys like you – know, we love when you guys send in topics. It was a great one today. We, we you know, kind of dominated the podcast, like the top three guys on both sides of the ball for each team. Stuff like that's fun. So if you have something that – uh, we can ask all of our scout experts about and, and bring it to you. We'll definitely do that. All right. Sweet. Sweet. Well, that's David Woods from Bro. Uh, I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. We are the Podcast of Champions. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and we will talk to you next time.